Day to day, we hear a lot about the planetary crisis we're facing. Yet, we don't often begin to imagine that the solution to climate change may be in our own bodies, in our cells. Yet, levels of cellular inflammation are at an all-time high, fueling skyrocketing rates of physical and mental disease globally. This is what we're discussing today with Harvard-trained physician Parneet Pal. In this conversation, Parneet brilliantly outlines how cellular inflammation and mitochondrial dysfunction influence our decision-making, making us impulsive, stuck in old patterns of thinking and doing, and resorting to short-terminism. These decisions that we make as individuals, consumers, business leaders, they shape the systems that we build around us, especially those that perpetuate our climate crisis. In this way, Parneet argues that if we can solve our well-being, we can solve our workplace and ecological challenges. We can use our biology to work for us, not against us, as a powerful lever to intervene and shift our systems towards well-being for all as we cultivate a regenerative planet. I'm Joel Ferris. Welcome to The Fuzz. Welcome to The Fuzz, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. I am Carolina Montilla. And I'm Joel Ferris. Parneet, thank you for joining us on The Fuzz. We're so excited to have you. Uh, thank you so much, Joel and Carolina. Pleasure to be here. Welcome. In your work, you're thinking very holistically, and I, I wonder if you could give us a bit of background in regard to your path and journey to where you are today and what were some of the major thresholds that you crossed in your journey that led you to some of the revelations that have really shaped and informed the work you're doing now? Um, so maybe a good place to start, Joel, to put all of that into context uh, would be to reference a couple of quotes that are my favorites. Uh, and one is from biologist Janine Benius. Um, and you know she said that life creates conditions conducive to life. Mm. And the other is from Bucky Fuller, uh, who said that the real wealth of life um, aboard our planet is, and he used three phrases that that are really important. He said that it's forwardly operative, mm. metabolic, and uh, intellectual regenerating system. And, and he also said that if we don't um, comprehend and realize our potential ability as humans to support life, then, um, you know, we, we are cosmically bankrupt. So I, I, I mentioned these quotes, because I think, even though I didn't know them many, many years ago, as I was going through my path in life, I think the place that I've come to um, is is embodied in, in those statements. So um, I, I grew up in India, that's where I went to school and medical school. And um, you know, I loved biology. I loved learning about the human body. I think the human body is really a wonderland, uh, so complex uh, and um, it really exhibiting, you know, what Bucky Fuller said, you know, this very regenerative, intellectual, forward, uh, forwardly operative metabolic system, just like all other forms of life. And the design of our human body is... Um, is just awe-inspiring when you get down and look at 
like the cellular level and, and how the hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that are happening right now in, in all of our bodies that are allowing us to, to do the things that we do. So I've also, I've always been in awe of that piece. And then as I went through my um, uh, career journey, you know, I, I moved to North America to uh, complete medical residency programs here. And I just started noticing a trend um, that had started back in India, but continued in North America, which was that on the one hand, I was in awe of what the human body can do and our potential to take care of ourselves and our health. But at the same time, I was noticing that the systems that we're surrounded with uh, are really not conducive to maintaining health and life. And this is a feature of systems globally. So it's not just like a North American um, issue at all. And that, that really stuck with me. And then as I sort of kept moving forward in the healthcare system and, you know, in the practice of medicine, I realized that this was very, very deeply entrenched in how medicine is practiced as well. And I think most physicians go into this um, career path with the noblest of intentions to help create conditions conducive to life, at least to human life. Uh, but the incentives built into the system are really, really move them in very um, in a different direction and make it very hard for them. You know, the rates of burnouts and the rates of like suicides among the healthcare community are, are one of the highest. And so, uh, so for me, the I think the thresholds or the pivoting points were just noticing um, what I was observing, the fact that that I was not uh, happy in um, in the clinical setting. Uh, I felt really constrained with what I was able to do. And I was being really drawn towards the data and the statistics that pointed to prevention being such a powerful tool that we have uh, in keeping ourselves healthy. And so I, uh, I, I decided to make this change uh, and to focus on prevention to see how we can use our lifestyle to optimize our health. Uh, and the other sort of pivot or threshold point was noticing that I really love teaching and I really love communicating these concepts. And so that's where um, the shift also happened. So I, so my career moved from clinical practice to designing wellbeing programs uh, in the workplace, the, the place where we spend most of our lives is a system that we surround ourselves with for many, many hours in the day. Uh, and it has a huge impact on our health. Um, and then more and more now into becoming sort of embodying being a physician educator and science communicator. And really my goal is to teach skills and communicate ideas that advance personal workplace and planetary health. So powerful. And I, I think it's so needed. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more to that shift from kind of reactive, responsive healthcare to the preventative healthcare. And so some of what's happening in that space and why why it's important and what that might look like in regard to connecting our health to planetary health. Yeah, so I, I think a good place to start might be some of the statistics. So we, as a society globally, uh, the rates of stress and burnout, loneliness, you know, many different aspects of mental health, but also the rates of lifestyle-related chronic diseases, which are things like um, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, uh, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's 
Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, mood disorders, all of these account for the majority of our healthcare spend, uh, more than 80% in the US and wow. similarly globally. They also account for most of our suffering, right? Mm -hmm. So if you develop one of these diseases, it's a huge toll um, that it takes on you, on you, your family, your work, uh, what you want to do in the world. But the good news is that the data also very clearly show over and over again that when we pay attention to just a few key aspects of our lifestyle, what we eat, how we move, how we sleep, and how we manage our stress, we can prevent 80 to 90% of these chronic lifestyle-related diseases. And so that's a really, really, I think, empowering and um, um, stat for us to lean on. And so the so that's one piece is just, you know, to your question of um, that's why I think prevention is so powerful and paying attention to our lifestyle is so important. But then kind of shifting and, uh, you know, taking a look at how does that inform the connections between personal and planetary health? Uh, I think that's where I like to tell the story of mitochondria because I, I think they are such um it's not just a metaphor, but they are sort of like these literal connections between our inner and outer ecologies. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to take a slight tangent to just sort of give people a little bit of context around. Yeah, yeah, around yeah. Yes, please. What mitochondria are if they if they haven't heard about that, but um, so you know, coming back to that notion of our our life being metabolic uh, in the body of the human body, but in the bodies of all other species, metabolism simply means this process where we take food in whatever form it's available, and our cells break that food down to produce energy. And that energy helps us uh, to, to perpetuate life and to regenerate life and to maintain life and to restore life. Uh, and so in our body, that means that we convert the food that we eat into energy to uh, build our body, our muscles, uh, give us the energy to show up at work every single day. But then all of those metabolic reactions are also producing waste products. And it's really very important for the body to be able to eliminate those waste products in an effective manner so that they don't accumulate in the body. So that's what metabolism is. It's these, you know, and there are literally at the cellular level, hundreds of thousands of these chemical reactions, very, very complex reactions that are taking place uh, every single minute. And a key regulator of this metabolism in the cell uh, are these organelles called mitochondria. And uh, every cell has hundreds, sometimes thousands of these mitochondria. And what we're learning now about mitochondrial health is that they really hold the key to um, not just uh, metabolism, but to every aspect of health and disease. So uh, you can think of them as these regulators or these masterminds. And what they do is, they balance growth and repair. So this is very important. And again, this is a sort of general organizing principle of life and natural systems is that there has to be a homeostasis, a balance between how much growth and how much repair and restoration is happening. And so disease or imbalance happens when you know one exceeds the other. And so what mitochondria do is they're taking in these cues from our external environment. And external just simply means external to the cell, right? So anything, the way that we're thinking, the emotions that we're feeling, how we're showing up in our everyday lives is one stimulus. But then you also need to think of everything 
concept comprises what's called the exposome. And the exposome is um, uh, literally the repository of all of our life experiences, starting from conception. So starting mm -hmm. in utero, our early childhood life experiences, all the way till the day that we die, that whole bank of accumulated life experiences or life exposures is called the exposome. And so now there's a lot of research being done around how this exposome, all these stimuli, social, uh, physical, mental, emotional, environmental, uh, economic, all of these stimuli are being interpreted in the body by our mitochondria because they have to respond to those stimuli. And they respond to the stimuli by shifting metabolism in one way or the other. Mm. And again, this is a very complex process. Uh, you can go as deep as you want into it, but essentially it, it translates into those chemical reactions shifting either more towards growth or towards repair. It means translating our genes in a particular way. So turning on genes in a um, turning on genes on and off um, as needed. And all the while, really the goal of mitochondria and our cellular metabolism is to keep us healthy. And I think that's very important for us to keep in mind is that's what's the point of this whole thing. The point of this whole thing is that we want the mitochondria are like rooting for us. They're saying, hey, I want you, I want to give you the best possible energy that you have to go out into the world and do the work that you want to do. Uh, but then the sort of flip side of that equation is that if we constantly bomb, expose ourselves to or bombard our mitochondria with overwhelming stimulation in the form of all of these uh, lifestyles, right? Like if we're constantly living these fast-paced lives where uh, we are asking a lot of, of our metabolic systems, then our mitochondria, our immune systems, our microbiome, uh, they all try really, really hard to keep up with it. But at a certain point, uh, we kind of disrupt these cellular boundaries. So just like, you mm -hmm. know, with the planetary health, like we're exceeding our planetary boundaries. Similarly, we kind of start exceeding those cellular boundaries of home homeostasis. And that's when we get into trouble. And what and the manifestation of that in the cell is something called inflammation. So we can get into, you know, what that means. But essentially, inflammation is the... Uh, it's an immune reaction, it's protective, but when, um, you know, when there's an imbalance and when, you know, we're, um, when the, the, when there's this overstimulation with a, through our exposome, then um, inflammation becomes chronic and then it becomes dysfunctional. Uh, and that becomes a starting point for all of our chronic lifestyle related diseases that I talked about. But I think very importantly, uh, um, it, this inflammation influences our ability to make decisions. So I think for us in the workplace or as, you know, within our families and our relationships, I think that's a really important point because often we can't see the start of these chronic diseases, right? So it's very hard for people to kind of feel what's happening in their cells. You, you know, you yes, don't get the signals early on. Exactly, exactly. Right. So you may think that yeah, everything's okay with, you know, I can, so what if I didn't get sleep last night, you know, I'm young. And especially, you know, when we're in our twenties and our thirties, that's the health is sort of the last thing that we think about because, uh, you know, we feel invincible, but unfortunately what we know is that this inflammation is, is starting to simmer very, very early, depending on our lifestyles. So yes, you know, there will be repercussions down, down the line, 
But I think a more immediate repercussion that we need to keep in mind, even when we're super young, is that this information, biologically, the body is thinking, okay, we are, you know, there's there's an injury happening to us right now. Our survival is at stake. We need to protect ourselves. So we need to like hang on to any kind of resources that we can get a hold of. Uh, and so instinctively, that makes us more uh, short-sighted, more impulsive. It's harder for us to delay gratification. Uh, and, and so what ends up happening is that we make... Uh, we don't always make the best decisions for our own health, right? So that's why it's so hard to stick to healthy behaviors for our businesses. You know, what are the strategies that we are outlining for our business? Are they aligned with long-term planning or are they just about the next quarter? And, but then as individuals and consumers, right? Like it's it's all about like, what is the next thing I can buy or consume or accumulate versus thinking about the long-term ramifications mm-hmm. of actions. So again, I can, <laughs> I can keep going on about yeah. that. Can I just really quickly uh try and recap some something because i think this is really important and i want to make sure that that we're all seeing this as lucidly as you're seeing this Bernie. uh we live a life and that lifestyle leads to this uh, uh activation of the exposome which in turn translates to the way that our body at a cellular level kind of responds to our environment is that correct Right. Yes. And we can either maintain a sense of balance at a cellular level in regard to repair versus exertion of energy. And if that gets out of balance for too long, we find ourselves in this world of things like inflammation and other disease. And is that also correct? Yes. And that then to treat that disease, or that inflammation, we go to a doctor and we ask for medicine or treatment of some kind. And that's the traditional approach that we've taken. And, and what you were saying earlier is that, that that was too narrow for you, that you felt constrained in that, and you wanted to take a preventative approach. And so just for the sake of just making this like overtly, stupidly simple, there's the approach of I don't feel good. So the doctor gives me a pill. Then there's the approach of, I don't do the thing that doesn't make me feel good. Right. And that's the preventative side. And you're saying that, Hey, if we learn how to tune into the things that don't make us feel good, if we learn how to, through awareness and understanding of how our body is operating in response to our environment and and the systems that we exist and operate on and the behaviors that perpetuate our lives every day, that we can keep things in balance and prevent ourselves from having to go to the point of having to get the you know disease treated in a, in a reactive, responsive way. Is that a like a a very simple, fair summary of some of the things that you're saying? Absolutely, totally. Yeah, I think I thought I think that's a really good summary. And and just to just sort of uh, round it out a little bit, I think also to remember that, you know, I wish everyone could fall in love with their biology as much as I have. I get very excited about it because I see the beauty in it, and I'm hoping that through our conversation and the other conversations that I'm having, that more and more of us can connect to that sense of excitement about their biology. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, we want to prevent disease, but we also want to live our best life. 
And, you know, when, when we think about the impact that we want to have in the world, no matter what industry you're working in or what kinds of relationships you're in, I think if, if we if we use that as our primary motivation for staying healthy, uh, it's, it's, it's often easier to do that, right? So if I want to have more focus, more creativity at work, uh, or if I want to be able to do really hard things well, uh, or if I want to have a, a deep connection with my family and friends, I like to say that we can't outrun our biology. And it's, um, you know, it's biologically true. So we hit up against the limits of our biology in so many different ways that show up in our relationships and our work. And so hopefully, um, hopefully folks are listening to this and uh, also thinking about, yes, we want to prevent disease, but it's also how can I make my biology work to its optimal level so that then I can go out and do whatever I want to do in the world you know, uh, and hopefully make the world uh, an even more beautiful place. Bernie, what are the mechanisms that, because you, we talked about it earlier that, you know, we think like in our 20s, in our 30s, that we can catch up, that we can like put our bodies through a lot of imbalance and eventually we'll catch up and eventually we'll do the right things. And, and you're saying all this is an accumulation, like the imbalance doesn't happen in your 40s. You're accumulating experiences, behaviors, all this is part of the equation. Um, and for people that, you know, sometimes we get signals when it's too late, when it's, uh, it's already chronic, when there, we already need to react to something. What are the mechanisms to kind of assess or like the the balance or imbalance of our mitochondria early so we we can actually like take steps to to prevent it so that's um so are you referring to like what are the symptoms that you might start to feel if you if yes or how can we assess if if we're imbalanced or not so we don't have we don't wait until it's chronic yeah so because mitochondria are involved in practically every aspect of what keeps us alive, any um, mitochondrial dysfunction or metabolic dysfunction can affect any and all organs in the body. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that in the beginning, if we are um, getting out of balance, uh, clinically, it might show up in ways, very subtle ways, like brain fog or uh, not feeling like we have enough energy to do the work that we need to do. We might find that our immunity decreases or we're falling sick very, very often, you know, just like the regular coughs and colds and flus. Um, so, th so that's kind of one aspect. Another aspect you can uh, think about because this is related to the actual transformation of food into energy is checking into like, are you um, having these energy crashes during the day? Uh, are you constantly having to eat food or snack on something to keep going? Uh, are you needing to like caffeinate yourself to maintain your level of focus throughout the day? And then what is the quality of your sleep when you go to sleep at night? Uh, are you able to fall asleep easily when you wake up in the morning do you feel refreshed or do you feel like uh, you know you could be in bed for many many hours all of these and, and of course one very important indicator is our emotional regulation so 
Um, and it's, you know, we, we all have work to do in that field in terms of training our emotional regulation systems. But if you find yourself um, noticing that your moods are very labile, that you're noticing more, that you're becoming increasingly anxious or like your moods become unpredictable or you're feeling more depressed. I think these are all little, um, little signals, yeah. little signals that things are getting off balance. I think I'm off balance. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, Joel, Joel join, join the club because, you know, in some ways, I think like we are all um, right, off balance. Right. And I really want to emphasize that the goal here is never perfection, right? For so sure, it's, sure. it's not about putting this pressure on ourselves to like meet yeah, these yeah, immaculate yeah. lives every day. It's just yeah. impossible. Uh, and we need to like exercise some self-compassion. But then again, yeah. I think coming back to the point that, hopefully that becomes a motivation for us to support each other and create these communities where uh, it's easy for us. I mean, you guys do know this really well, you know, when how can you design a system so that the optimal behavior becomes the default behavior? So, um, so hopefully that's, that's where we go as a community. Yeah. I think this is really interesting and it, it ties in and especially to our experience of work because you know, four day work week's been getting a lot of attention, right? These last five or so years. And uh, you get various folks writing books and running pilots and, and even in some cases, entire countries legislating uh, experiments around the four day work week. And the data that's coming has been really promising, right? That we're seeing higher levels of engagement. We're seeing higher levels of productivity, higher levels of creativity, um, more sense of connection and community among your colleagues and coworkers. Um, increased revenue, increased uh, retention and loyalty among clients and customers. And it makes me think that the reason all of that is working is because there's room held and protected for repair, right? There's room held and protected for people to find that balance. In my own life, I've found that it's you know the the lack of motivation to exercise or to eat well or to get good sleep, is often a coefficient of how much work I feel like I have to do and how much is on my plate in this kind of weight of having to get things done. And so I default to coping behaviors to carry the load of the stress instead of doing the harder thing, which is the better thing, right? In terms of my personal health. And so you have this vicious cycle of perpetuated, you know, uh, imbalance and, What's the responsibility of employers today specifically for empowering their employees to disrupt that vicious cycle and to find that state of balance, to reclaim a state of, of health so that they could then be more engaged and more productive and less brain frog and better sleep and, you know, all of the things and, and not to put a, you know, productivity lens on all of this, because I don't think that's the point. But we understand that capitalism runs on incentive cycles. And what's the incentive here for organizations to be thinking about their the way that they design the experience of work for their employees? And how is that connected to this conversation of, of balance and, and mitochondria health? A couple of things that immediately come to mind. So the research shows like even if even if organizations, so let's start with organizations just thinking you know, one step at a time, starting with just productivity, if that's the only incentive that they are able to look at. 
even there, the data shows that beyond 55 hours of work per week, you know, productivity severely declines. You know, this is why falls off a cliff. Yeah. Falls off the cliff, right? Yeah, you've you've seen that data. And and this is why the four hour four-day work week is it works because you are optimizing um cognition so uh another kind of stat so again just through the lens of productivity solely the data also show for example that if you sleep for less than or rather if you if you stayed awake for 17 hours um, and you haven't gotten optimal sleep and you know we do that a lot right like if you actually look at our lifestyles you know right like I, I imagine you and I and Carolina we've all like done this pretty recently our cognitive performance is equivalent to that of somebody who might be considered legally drunk so think about like your teams are showing up at work every single day in with decreased focus, decreased memory, <laughs> decreased creativity, decreased accuracy, they're going to make more mistakes. Uh, they're, you know, just, just going to impact their productivity. But then that loss of sleep is also impacting their emotional regulation. So again, we know that sleep deprivation causes us to be up to 60% more emotionally labile. So, you know, we and again, we've all been there. We've been in that meeting where we're kind of feeling on edge and we react in ways that are probably suboptimal, uh, but it also really, really affects our ability to maintain those cultures of psychological safety that everyone is asked to, you know, as leaders to create. So, so again, just like from, if you just look at from a productivity angle itself, I think it's, benefits employers and organizations to pay attention to employee well-being and to give them this time to recover and recuperate in meaningful ways. But then I think for organizations or companies who are more forward-thinking and who want to kind of go beyond the productivity imperative and who understand the relationship of like these inner and outer ecologies who are thinking about sustainability and regeneration as part of their own business strategies and you know how their products are impacting the world. I think for them, this is a wonderful opportunity to shift their mindset around this, this old legacy mindset of the well-being of people at work is sort of an individual endeavor. It's the onus of the individual. You know, we're paying you, but like how you take care of your health is up to you. And oh, by the way, like you should be maintaining work-life balance. Uh, I'm not a fan of that phrase at all, because I think the more progressive way, when you think about the fact that a human, first of all, the human body is a multi-species ecosystem, right? So you have mitochondria that are ancient bacteria that have been co-opted in our cells. We also cannot function without our microbiome, which are the trillions of bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live on and inside our body that are really, really important for our health. So we have this human body, which is a multi-species ecosystem that, that is then living within this ecosystem at work, uh, in community and nations and the planet, then we start to realize that rather than looking for work-life balance, workplace itself, your business, your organization is a direct determinant of well-being. I hope that that, that um, distinction is, is clear. And so we need to start to think about, wow, our workplace and the cultures that we're creating at work is a huge part of that exposome. And it's affecting leaders and employees alike, 
which is affecting the decisions that they're making for your business, which is affecting the, uh, you know, how their products and their strategies uh, are enacted in the world, which again, so there's like this feedback loop, mm -hmm. right? How we show up affects the exposome, the exposome then feeds back and it affects our cellular health and on the story goes. So um, did I, did I answer your question? Like, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it it's striking me as a bit ironic that you have all of these companies setting carbon reduction goals, and you know we're going to be you know zero percent emission by twenty thirty or whatever. Yet there's no burnout reduction goals, <laughs> and it's almost <laughs> as if like reaching that carbon neutrality actually creates more work and pressure for the employees themselves, because there's this mythological separation between life and work and that stress created nine to five doesn't carry over in the other hours of your day. And so there's this huge need. I think what I'm hearing you say is the internal ecology and the external ecology need to be designed as a singular system. And so if we're going to meet our carbon reduction goals, we have to think about the cost to human exertion and activity in terms of yes. that's a part of how we get there, right? It's almost like what is the emotional balance of your organization as part of what is the emotional health of your organization to actually get you to goals, to better products, to better impact on the planet. But our metrics are more on like measuring productivity versus measuring like our emotional health as a collective organization. Mm -hmm. You said pretty, exactly. yeah. you quoted someone, you said life begets life, which mm -hmm. um, I love. Do you think that balance begets balance? I think, I think in general, yes. But then to get to balance, you know, we will have moments where we are over indexing on one, on either the growth or the repair, right? So it's not right. like we can be in 50-50 balance yep. the whole yep. time. So it's, it's more about... Uh, recalibrating effectively when we're off balance. So maybe maybe recalibration begets recalibration. Yeah, or the and, pursuit and again, of balance. Yeah, and I um, I think just uh, you know, what is the goal here? Like, what are we uh, trying to get to with that balance? I think it's also really important to remember. Like, why are we trying? What is this balance for? Uh, and if we can reframe that to and relate that to whatever's most meaningful for us, um, then I think the recalibration of the balance becomes more exciting and more doable mm -hmm. and more reachable. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so, you know, there will be, uh, you know, there's, I think it's important to remember that all natural systems follow the principle of oscillation or rhythmicity, right? Right, so right. We have summer, winter, day night uh and and uh, the our um, cellular mechanisms follow that rhythmicity as well <clears throat> so in the daytime our our metabolic systems are primed they are optimized for growth and repair and eating and moving and the reason we have to sleep at night is because it turns on a very different set of gene expression uh, and metabolic systems that then get into gear for that repair and restoration and regeneration 
Um, and that's how the balance occurs. So it's not everything happening at the same time equally, but it's just responding to the stimuli, but also sort of uh, keeping the balance of this oscillation and, and rhythm as well. So for organizations that are interested in not just mapping, but understanding the connections between the patterns of work, the crisis of health, and the uh, meta crisis of you know planetary boundary transcendence and and ecocide and extinction and anthrocentrism and all of these things that we're facing in the world, the challenges that we're facing. Maybe to say that simpler, it's like our behaviors of work, our health, and our planetary health, right, are all interlinked. What should organizations begin doing? What what are some of the first steps that they can take to begin leaning into this and and beginning to make some changes and and some shifts? Yeah, I think a couple of things that come to mind is first uh, starting. You know, the decision makers and leaders need to start with their own health. I think it's mm. that's very important. So take a look at where they might they might be a little off balance. Uh, and start there. It's very hard to um, think more broadly if we are still stuck in those repetitive loops of thinking uh, and information. So, um, you know, use whatever personal motivation and meaning works best for you to help you to get to those uh, healthier behaviors. And then start to think about how can you prioritize, include, and track well-being metrics as a core part of like the organizational financial reporting system. And unfortunately we don't, it's very hard, right? It's very hard to um, translate a particular stimulation, uh, stimulus at work to a, you know, your blood pressure or the level of your, the sugar, uh, you know, your blood glucose level, right? It's very hard to make those direct connections. But what, what some organizations are starting to do is to just track these self-reported surveys. So maybe every quarter just doing a, a, a survey to check in with uh, your teams to see how they're doing uh, for their physical, mental, emotional, and social health. You know, what is the quality of their relationships? Uh, how are they feeling? You know, what are their moods doing? How much energy do they have? What are the levels of their focus and creativity? Um, do they feel collaborative? Do they feel overextended? Um, you know, how are the workloads and work workflows? Are, is it working for them or, or could they be done um, differently? So these are, so just even prioritizing that information uh, and then hopefully starting to see the, the links between how your teams are doing versus how the company is doing or where, where it wants to go. Um, but then you can add a, another complex there, which is, you know, how is the company doing in terms of its environmental sustainability strategy and goals as well? Um, yeah, so I, and I think, you know, in this conversation, uh, you know, you've, you've alluded to burnout a couple of times, Joel. Uh, and I think in that conversation, I, you guys are probably already aware, but I think for folks in the audience who may not be aware of this, the causes of burnout are systemic, right? So it's less about what the individual is able to do. It's more about the cultures that we are creating. So, um, and, you know, Christina Maslash has done the, the most seminal work in this area. So people who are interested can look up her work. You know, she outlines the six causes of burnout, which include um, 
you know, workloads, unmanageable workloads, uh, um, a perceived lack of autonomy at work. Um, there's um, whenever there's a values conflict um, at work, uh, a lack of community. Uh, there's insufficient reward for work. Um, so, so as you you know, when you when you hear those phrases, you realize that wow, it has less to do with me as an individual, but more about how this community that we're building at work or the culture that we're building at work is showing up. So, I think um, that's another place where organizations can start to embed those um, uh, questions or just open up these conversations with teams, right? Like even starting very simply with just like, hey, let's take a look at our workloads and workflows and how is this working for everyone and where are the shifts that we can make to support each other? And again, not, you know, I completely realize that organizations, decision makers, like most leaders want to do well by their teams, right? It's it's not like, uh, you know, they're these evil creatures who wake up in the morning to torture their teams. Uh, but I think, um, uh so, so just to have a little bit of empathy and compassion for them and to, um, I think for them, it's really important to start engaging their teams and starting to have these conversations so that they get the feedback. You know, there was a recent um, survey done by Deloitte, a Wellbeing at Work survey that showed that's a huge discrepancy between how employees are doing in terms of their well-being. So most employees reported that their health actually stay the same or worsened in the past year, whereas the majority of leaders thought that um, uh, health and well-being of the employees had improved. And so I think there's this real disconnect between how people are feeling at work and how leaders are perceiving it. So, so maybe, yeah, st start talking to your teams a little bit more. I feel we could do an entire episode about that connection and, you know, like, the impact and the potential of how that connection could be very meaningful and actually like informative to where we could go <laughs> as collectives. Uh, I think that's fascinating to me that at the end of the day, like, yes, it starts very much inside of us, but the environments that we live in, the systems, the relationships, the groups, the leaders that we have affect us, affect society, affects the planet. Uh, it's all like a, a series of connections. Exactly, yeah. Bernie, thank you so much for this. Um, it was a wonderful conversation. We covered a lot. There's some massive ideas, I think, embedded throughout this that I'd love to provide resources for folks. We'll include in the show notes some links and some other things uh, that will direct people to more of your work and other things that folks can pick up on because this is a really important conversation. And I think that the interconnectedness of these systems and understanding our own health in relation to planetary health really does feel kind of like a fulcrum uh, of sorts that it's going to get us to um, a sustainable future that we all want to live in. So Thank you again. Appreciate you and your work and your your insight and brilliance and for the conversation. Your Thank knowledge you so sharing you. is is empowering. Thank you. Oh, really good to hear that. Thank you so much. Thank you both. You've been listening to The Fuzz, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. The Fuzz is hosted by Carolina Montilla and Joel Ferris. Production by Jared Price. Brand designed by Krista Reeder. The theme music was written by Ido Maimong. 
For more on all things fuzzy, please visit our substack, thefuzz.substack.com. Thanks for listening.